relation to that thing. So your understanding precedes your doing. So for instance, if your family went to an amusement park this summer or any time within the last year, this was seen in how you related to the roller coasters, how you thought about them going in. Your understanding of them led to what you did in relationship to them. So if you have uh, information over the last headlines, over the, over the summer months of all the coaster disasters that have happened across the states and people getting stuck in them for hours and um, some not even coming out and you're like, you know, those roller coasters are just a death trap of complete destruction. I will never set foot in one. Well, then when you went to that amusement park, you got nowhere near them. And while your kids were riding them, you were interceding feverishly for their safety. But if you think that a roller coaster, if your understanding is informed in the sense that you think it's the quickest and most exciting way to experience the highest thrill level available to the common man who can afford entrance into the park, then you were first in line. Like this was your ticket, your opportunity to get to enjoy the edge of life. How you thought about, how you understood something informed what you did in relationship to that thing. We can apply that to any part of life. It's an undeniable rule. How you operate in school links back to your understanding of learning, your understanding of who you are and what you need to grow in or not grow in. How you relate to the church directs relate, uh, relates directly to, I'll get it out, relates directly to how you think about the church, your perception of what God is doing and has done with the church. How you treat your spouse and your kids and your grandkids is a an outflow of your understanding of them and of you in relationship to them. How you think about and treat your physical body is directly related to what you understand about it. Your understanding of money is the uh, produces out of you how you use it and how you seek to acquire and keep it. The list goes on and on. You need me to not go on and on about that. Your life is ruled by this indisputable law. How you understand and think about things determines how you act in relation to those things. This is what we see in John 13. Jesus drives this point home to his 12 apostles in a most breathtaking way. He's lowered himself below them. He, being their Lord and teacher, has donned the slave's towel and has served them by washing their feet in the upper room. They've seen what he's done. They've they've been amazed by it. But what Jesus does next lets us know that seeing is not enough. Perceiving with our eyes and understanding concepts is not enough. So he takes time in this unique, teachable moment of his own doing to, to drive it home, to help them understand what he has done and why it matters. Last week in verses 1 through 11, we saw Jesus as this amazing servant savior. We saw the love of the savior and the supremacy of the Savior. We saw the humility of the Savior. We saw the cleansing power of the Savior. Now to today, this week, in this text, we see the example of the Savior. All that being our backdrop, what does he lay before us as the example of how to now live in following him? John 13 verse 1 says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, never in a million zillion years will you ever touch my feet. That's the rough paraphrase. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, or better, reclined back at table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is here in his final hours. He's facing the dark reality of the cross looming on the horizon. He's found a secret place for him and his disciples to come away from the crowds, away from the scrutiny of the political leaders, intending to spend these final few hours investing in them and training them, discipling them, and praying over them. As they celebrated the Passover feast together, you know, I just read, Jesus rose from the table, went about the lowly task of taking the servant's towel, the slave's towel, and washing their feet. He didn't have to do this. We talked about this last week. They could have gotten by without, with dirty feet, right? Jesus still would have gone to the cross, still would have paid for our sins, still would have risen again. The gospel would not be hindered or hampered, but he took this teachable moment seized the opportunity to serve them and then to teach them. Our focus this morning is on verses 12 through 17 to drive home the teaching of Jesus in light of the example of Jesus. He says in verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? That's a teaching tool. It's like a father to a child. Do you understand what has just happened? The rhetorical understanding is no, Not fully. I mean, I thought I did. But apparently you're going to tell me more, right? That's the idea here in verse 12. Notice how in verse 12, he he starts with their understanding. Do you understand? And then in verse 17, he ends with their doing. If you know these things and you do them, you are blessed. This is always the pathway in Scripture. It is understanding, grasping of truth, And then the doing of those things as it works itself out in a transformed life. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
giving our lives as a living sacrifice in light of what Christ has done for us, the mercies we've been shown. We then have minds which are renewed. Rather than being conformed to the world, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And our lives look like what the rest of chapter 12 describes. This is the, the knowing, the understanding, followed by the, the doing. This is always the pathway of Scripture. And by understanding, we're not d- simply dealing with facts. We're not simply dealing with, with truths that you can say in your mind and repeat in, in bullet point fashion. This is what it means to be humble. Bump, 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 bump. No, we're talking about understanding in the inner man. We're talking about truth penetrating to the very depths of who you are, penetrating to the core of your being through your mind, grasping these facts, but then gripping your soul, transforming your loves, your affections, your will, your choices, your interests and your desires are all now infiltrated by this truth and shaped by this truth. This is the ongoing work of the Spirit for the, to the end of the life of the believer to renew us and to remake us with the truth that we would understand. So the end goal that Jesus has with his disciples is that they would walk in humble service toward one another as an expression of their worship of God. Is that a fair uh, summary of John 13, 1 to 20? He wants them to walk in humble service following his example in worship to God. Notice he doesn't teach them that simply by modeling it and moving on. Nor does he teach them that by simply telling them to do this and moving on. No, he models it for them in a breathtaking way, a way they can't get around, nor can they fully even grasp. And then he teaches them the significance of it and how this should inform their own humble service. And this all obviously is centered around the person of Christ. He's the key to the whole thing. We'll never know what this should look like uh, apart from Christ. And we'd never have the ability or the desire to live this way apart from the transforming grace of Christ. All of that is built into this text. And so it is this Christ, this Jesus, to whom we look and listen in John 13. So what must we understand in order to serve like Jesus has called us to serve? Well, he teaches his apostles four things that they need to know, they need to understand that they serve like he wants them to. He tells us that we must understand who Jesus is. We must understand how Jesus served. We must understand who we are. And we must understand what we must do. Jesus starts in verse three with verse 13, excuse me, with who he is. With who he is. That really has been the most stunning part of this text up to this point. It's not that one of the men got up from the table and donned the slave's towel to serve the other men. No, if it was going to get done, one of them had to do it. That's the insinuation of John. There's no one else in the room. Someone had to do it. It's not that someone did it. It's, it's who did it. It's that Jesus got up, their, their master and their Lord. In the original, before the word teacher and Lord, in verse 13, there is the article in the Greek, the teacher and the Lord. It's, it's fine to translate it in the English without the article, but you need to know it, it, it means more than just a teacher, more, more than just a Lord, you know, one of many. No, this is their only teacher and Lord. He is it. He's supreme in these offices over their lives. This is fitting, isn't it? I mean, in the days leading up to the, 
the foot washing in the upper room, they've heard Jesus silence his opposition with masterful teaching in the temple courtyards. They've seen him heal disease after disease. They've seen him domineer demons. They've seen him control the temple grounds with his authoritative presence. There is no doubt in their mind in the upper room that he is God in the flesh, save one, Judas. But the other 11 are convinced this man before us is our very teacher and Lord. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus affirms that. He says, listen, you are right about that. You should call me teacher and Lord. That's what I am. And then he says, this is the fountainhead out of which the rest of what I'm going to tell you flows. Because of who I am, you should now listen to everything else I have to say. I mean, doesn't that kind of inherently get built into what it means to call Jesus Lord and teacher? Doesn't he then get to call the shots? Doesn't he then get to teach us what is true and how to walk in the truth? Turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, I cheated, I had a marker in my Bible, so I'm there before you. But Luke 6, this is a text that Luke repeats for us. It's a a section that Matthew gives us as part of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Luke gives gives it to us as an expression of Jesus to the general crowds. The end of Luke 6, Luke records for us in verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was very great. Do you see it? Do you see the point Jesus is making? You call me Lord, but then you don't do what I say. You're like the fool who built his house on sand that when the streams come, you have an immediate and drastic and dramatic fall, a destruction of the house of your life. And how often have we seen this with our very own eyes? How often have we known this in our, our very own lives? Calling Jesus Lord, but refusing to, to do things his way and then seeing the end of that being terrible and tragic. This is the essence of what Jesus is saying to his apostles in the upper room back in John 13. Remember who I am. I am your Lord and teacher. If that means anything, it means listen to me and do what I say. Then Jesus helps them understand how he served. Verse 12, did you notice that John slowed down the narrative again? He had done that in verses 4 and 5. If this were a movie, it went into slow motion and it zoomed in on Jesus. As in verses 4 and 5, he rose from the table and he took off his outer garment and he donned the towel and he filled the wash basin and he walked around and washed every disciple's feet. John's doing that. He could have just said he got up and washed their feet. But he wanted you to see it in slow motion so that you understood this really happened and everyone in the room was captivated by what was going on. And now he closes that out in verse 12 and he says, when he had washed their feet, meaning everyone in the room, and put on his outer garment and resumed his place. So before we get into what he says, we must be reminded of what he has done. 
These men in the room had watched his every move. They had seen him move from one set of dirty feet to the next. Their mouths were proverbially on the ground. They were astonished that he would do this, and now it's done. Not even Peter has a word to say here. He reclines back at the table. There's hushed silence in the room. They're all staring at Jesus. What in the world has just happened? Why have you done this to us? And now Jesus speaks with this probing, instructive question. Do you understand what I have done? He moves from that to then instruct them about how he served. And telling them how I have served then should be how you should serve one another. If I'm your master and Lord as you claim me to be, then do what I have done, he says. So what has he done? Let's consider that for a minute. Well, in summary, in complete humility, he's lowered himself to the lowest position of anyone in the room. Taking off his outer garments, a a sign of, of shame and humility. Donning the towel of the servant and doing a task no one else was willing to do. Everyone in the room knew it needed done. Everyone. This was common practice when you entered in to a meal, into a, an inner room for a meal. Your feet would be washed. They didn't have a servant to do it, and they all willingly reclined at table, unwilling to touch other people's feet. I will not serve in that low of a capacity. Jesus has gotten up and taken that position and humbly served them, even, by the way, the feet of the one who was about to go out and betray him. The one who was in league, not just with the Sanhedrin, but with Satan. The one who in this moment had Satan in his ear telling him, now is the time, go and do the deed. The one whom John will tell us later in verse 24, 26, somewhere in there, that Satan entered him, possessed him, and took him on his evil Errand. Even that man had his feet humbly washed by Jesus. So how do we serve like Jesus? Well, consider a couple of thoughts. That service is convictional, not conditional. Service is convictional, not conditional. There really could not have been less ideal conditions for Jesus in the upper room. For him to think about and engage in serving other people, Right? Everything was against Jesus at this point. His own disciples misunderstood him. They they were waiting for him to announce his political overthrow of Rome and the establishment of his throne in Jerusalem as he sat and assumed the throne of David. One of his disciples who had played the part for two plus years, he knew had already made league with Satan and with the Sanhedrin and was about to leave the room and go betray his whereabouts so that they could come arrest him at night. Beyond that, the the darkness of night deepens physically, but the darkness of sorrow descends upon our Lord's heart as he looks at the horizon of history and sees the, the looming reality of the cross bearing down upon him. Knowing that for the very reason he came into the world, he is about to go to the cross for sinners like you and me. He knows the reality of that wrath of his Father that's about to fall upon his shoulders, crushing him to death. It's in that backdrop, with all that going on in the the spirit and the soul, the emotions, the physical realities surrounding Jesus' moment, he gets up, dons a towel, and wipes every one of their feet. 
This is so because this is why Jesus came. This is convictional, not conditional. It's not about having all the the right things in place that would make service easy or helpful to do. It's because he's convicted about the reality of why he's there. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He who was rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich in him. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Therefore, he he emptied himself and took upon himself the, the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death, even a cross kind of death. The worst of the worst kind of death. This is the conviction of our Savior played out in the upper room when a need is presented before him. He is here to serve. You hardly need me to make the application, but let me do that. So often we serve based on our conditions. If the stars align just right, if things are relatively easy, if it calls for a little bit of sacrifice mixed in with a good bit of recognition from others, then we'll jump in, sign up, and serve. But not so with Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew who they were. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew the end of the matter. And he was freed in all of these things to serve in this great expression of his Humility. That's what he then calls them to hear, that they ought wash one another's feet. That word for ought to is a word of obligation or debt. It's expected. It, you can't get around it. If he is your master and Lord, then, then this behooves you, an old English word. You, you have to. You can't be his disciple and not be a humble servant. It's not an option. His people, his followers are following him in humble service. This is the convictional nature of service. Service also then is about pattern, not position. We see in Jesus that service is, not a, is about pattern, not position. Jesus was in the seat of honor at the feast. He was their teacher and their Lord, yet he humbled himself and gave himself and served them and set for us a pattern that we would follow him making Our service, not about our position, but about patterning our life after Christ. I don't know how to talk about this without going to Philippians 2. So would you turn there with me? I don't know of a better text that makes this so very clear and drives it home to our heart. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is explaining to the church in Philippi to be like-minded, to complete his joy, to participate in the work of the Spirit among them tells him in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the, that's the mental math of humility. When you think about other people, you have to do some mental math and assess who's more valuable in the situation, me or them. And, and when you're not thinking about that, the mental math is always going to put you on the heavier end of the scale and others on the lighter end of the scale. You'll be above them, as it were, and they will serve you as you judge and assess them. But Paul says, as he points to Christ, that ought not be us. In humility, mentally considering the realities, we should count ourselves 
lesser than others, others more significant than us. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. How do we do this? Now he points to the heart of the text, Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Put this mindset on. Be transformed to think the way Christ thought. So now Paul opens up the head of Jesus, as it were, and lays it out there for you and says, this is what he considered. This is the mental math he did, and, and here's how it shaped his life. And notice it starts with understanding in verse 6, and it ends with doing in verse 8, just like in John 12, John 13, excuse me, verses 12 through 17. He says to them, verse 6, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. There are steps down into humility laid out for us in this text. And you have to descend on each of these steps to get to the point of humbly serving like our Lord did. The first step down is found in verse 6 that you have to give up your position. Jesus gave up his position. He did not count it something to be clung to or grasped and held on to. He was truly and fully God, equal with God. We saw in John 1, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. That did not change in the incarnation. He maintained all of those realities. But he chose before the foundation of time to humble himself by being willing to leave the glories due the triune God and come incarnated as man into our existence. And that's the second step down. So give up your position. And this is so very true for us before I get to the second one. We so often don't serve because we assume a higher position than the ones before us to serve. And whether you have that higher position or not is is often a matter of opinion. Often these positions are ones we've made up in our own mind that we're better than them because of fill in the blank. Sometimes it's actually a position that you've been given by God as a a stage of life. You're a father, a parent, a, a grandparent, a teacher, some level of authority ordained by God. Therefore, you have position over them. But even in that, follow Christ here. Give up your position. doesn't mean stop functioning in it. Forget all the things God's told you about doing in that position. No, do all the things in that position in honor to the Lord in humility. Giving up your position. This is not about you. This is about serving others with your position. Give it up. Second step down, give yourself as a slave. Verse 7, give yourself as a slave. He emptied himself. He did not lose one iota of his deity or his divinity. He did not set aside his powers. He did not forget how to be omniscient or omnipresent, or omnipotent. His deity in the mystery of what theologians call the hypostatic union, one person, two natures, the divine nature and the human nature together in one person, undiluted, undivided, mysterious to us. His deity is veiled behind his humanity, as the the hymn so well expresses. He emptied himself, giving himself up as a slave. 
resigning his position. Now he could willingly, joyfully, gladly, fully give himself over to serve however he could. And so he gave himself as a doulos, as a slave of all. Descending lower down this step of humility, this ladder down into the depths of humility, lower than any of us will ever go. None of us will have to take the step from verses 6 to 7 that Jesus had to take. But we are now to follow him in that path as imperfectly as we can, giving up our position and giving ourselves as a slave to our Lord and to others. And then verse 8, the third step is to give yourself to obedience. This is Jesus, what he did, he was found in human form and then he humbled himself. That's a different word for humility in verse 8 than we found in verse 3. It's the boots on the ground kind of humility. It's the, it's the, the shame of humility. It's the degradation of humility. Verse 3, it's the mindset of humility. It's, it's assuming the role of the humble person. In verse 8, it's the doing of the humble person. The actual being of the humble person. And that is obedience described in verse 8. You're, you obey the Lord. And in obeying, it took Jesus to the worst of human results. A, a Roman cross, but beyond that, a Roman cross upon which he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The, the immediate end of these steps down into humility was not pretty. And yours probably won't be either. There will be shame involved in donning the towel of the slave and obeying your Lord and taking these steps of giving up your position and giving yourself as a slave and giving yourself to obedience to your Lord. And in so doing, then you will put yourself with Christ who, having humbled himself, was then highly exalted. You yourself will not be exalted as though you have somehow accomplished some great thing. But in your humble service to our Lord, you will be raised from the depths of service in this life to the heights of an eternal glory with Christ, too great for human words or human minds to comprehend in this day. You will be exalted with him to an eternity of joy at his right hand, being humbled with him and walking after him. So serving well, serving as God intends us to, demands a right understanding of who Jesus is and of how Jesus served. Back in John 13, it also demands a right understanding of who we are. Who we are. This is really the marrow of Jesus' teaching in John 13, 12 to 17. It's in verse 16. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You've read that first phrase so often, you skip over it. You, you probably don't even read it in your mind because you've seen it so often, you just move to the next phrase. It should do actually the exact opposite. He means by that to get your attention. So everything Jesus says is important. When he marks it off by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, He's like, hey, listen up. Hear and heed this. Now we're getting down to the brass tacks. Everything else mattered. It's important. But here, listen. If you haven't caught anything else, catch this. It's almost as if he's saying that. And what does he say? He reminds them of 
who they are. What he says to them is what he'll say on three different occasions in the gospel. So a total of four times in the gospel accounts, Jesus will say something like this. And I do not mean that he said it one time on one occasion and it was repeated four times in the gospel record. That happens sometimes. What I mean is in the gospels themselves, we can see that these are four different occasions. And Jesus says essentially the same thing four different times. Listen up, right? That's the idea, not just in truly, truly I say to you, but in the amount of times it's said. So in Matthew 10, 43 to 45, in the context of what it's going to cost to follow Jesus, Jesus says to them, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In Luke 6 and verse 40, in the context of general teaching we considered earlier, he says a teacher is, a master, excuse me, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Then in John 15, verse 20, later on in the upper room, Jesus will say to them, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they receive your word, know that they're receiving my word. A servant is not greater than his master. And right here in this text, Jesus, getting to the marrow of the point, says to them, you are a servant you are not greater than me. You are a messenger. You are not greater than the one who has sent you. So to serve well, we must understand who we are. I'm going to say a bunch of obvious things, but I have to say them. Keep it simple, stupid, and state the obvious. Here we go. If you think too highly of yourself, you will not serve other people. If you think too lowly of others, you will refuse to humble yourself below them and Serve them. If you forget who Jesus is in relation to who you are, you will not serve him or others. But if we remember that he is our Lord, our master, we will follow and do as he has done. You see, every refusal to serve in your life is really an elevation of self instead of a submission to Christ. It's a microaggression of pride. It's like a little sunburst on the face of your life, just bursting out in arrogance. I don't have to do that. I'm better than them. You'd never say that. You, you probably would never actually consciously think it. But these are the ruts of your sinful heart that you must know, be aware of, and fight against by God's grace. It's a subtle twitch of your selfish inner man that keeps you from picking up the servant's towel and in seeing a need, willingly entering in and meeting the need no matter what it might cost you. No matter how I might put you behind for the day. No matter what you might not get done because you had to help that person. I confess, there are other principles in Scripture in which you need to pursue and apply in wisdom to help guide how and when and who you serve. That's a topic for another day. We're talking about the heart of the matter here. Those are subsidiaries. Those aren't the core issues. Those are the, the fruits of the plant. We're talking about the root of the plant here. As Jesus lays it before you, are you understanding who he is and who you are in light of who he is? Every move to serve 
will find its most fertile soil in your heart when you see Christ clearly and are joyfully submitted as his servant to his will and his way. Lastly, we must understand what we must do. What we must do. Again, obvious, right? In verse 17. It's obvious what you must do. You must serve others, wash their feet, meet their needs. By the way, just let me make a mention about how this is not a rite of Jesus given to the church, or a ritual to practice like the Lord's table and baptism. There's two main reasons why that's true in this text. The first is that we don't ever build a, a doctrine and a practice like that based on one text. God never expects us to do that. So for baptism, he gives us amplitude of witnesses to tell us this is what we should do. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. Gives us the example of that then all throughout the book of Acts. The Lord's table, we're, we're given the account in the Gospels, then it's, it's given to us again by Paul and told to apply it to practiced in the church. And, and then the explanation of that throughout the, the epistles of, of what this means to, to fellowship around Christ together, around his table together. Culminating, obviously, in Revelation and the, the final supper with our Lord. There's nothing like that with foot washing. This is the only time. John 13's it. The only time we're given this idea of foot washing, and you're going to say, well, I can think of one other one. Okay, 1 Timothy 5. Paul says, if a widow has washed the feet of the, of the saints, then she's considered worthy of the honor of being on the roll of care. That's a practice. It's not a rite or a ritual. That's a, she cared well. Like she fed them a meal in our vernacular. She took off their coat and hung it on a hanger when they came into her house. Now, that's just how common it was to have to wash the feet of those who were guests in your home. But more than that, the church wants this to be a ritual because we want to, we want to put this in a box so we can get it done, check it off our list, and go on our merry way. Right? This is what the, the Romish church has done, the papists have done. On Maundy Thursday, they, they celebrate foot washing and the Pope brings in some, some vagrant who uh, is destitute and without anything and they, they bring him and make a big spectacle of the Pope washing the feet of some poor destitute fellow. Well, then watch the rest of the Pope's life. Is it lived in utter humility of service? No, it's all about pomp and circumstance and lifting up this man who is supposedly the vicar of Christ over the church over the whole globe. It's sheer pompery and circumstance. That is not what John 13 is talking about. That's not what Jesus had in mind. He obviously means for you to have a heart that is caught with Christ that then fleshes it out in humble service every opportunity you get as you are filled with and instructed by his grace. So what must we do? There's two verbs in verse 17, to know and to do. To know is in the perfect mood. To do is in the present mood. So to know is this ongoing state of affairs. It's, it's just the reality. You, you understand it. To do is a, an ongoing present practice of what is known. It's the application of that state of affairs. So this is how it is. We know Christ gave us this example. We know who we are. We know who he is. We know what we should do. To do then is to put that into practice, to live in light of that truth. It's not something situational or fluctuating depending on how the wind's blowing that day. No, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It looks like this constant knowledge of settled realities, that you're not greater than your master, you're not beyond your teacher. He who humbled himself to serve you, therefore you humble yourself to serve 
others in service to him. That knowledge never changes, but the knowledge of those facts is not enough. You must understand it, and in understanding it, you must do it. Jesus says, if you do this, you are blessed. You are blessed. You're happy. It's the same word used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They're in a state of of contented blessedness, supernaturally given to them by a God of blessing. So Jesus says, if you know these things and you do these things, you are happy, full of blessing from the Lord. You know, really, Jesus is describing his own state here, isn't he? From a human perspective, you look at the upper room. Let's just imagine you're there with them. You just, in your mind's eye, get the, the 12, 13 men around the table, and you're one of those disciples. And before supper starts, you all were hankering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, and you're fighting for seats. And you lost. You're at the lower end of the table. And in your mind, you think, you know, I'm at the lower end of the table. I probably should get the basin and wash everyone's feet. That's what needs to be done. But as you think about that, you think, that's the worst job in the world. Why in the world would I want to do that? I will sit here and wait until someone else does it. You know what? I'll think about something else. I'll I'll strike up a conversation with Peter. He'll talk so long, I won't even know what hit me, and it'll be over, and it'll be done. And I won't have to worry about the guilt of not washing people's feet. And you weasel your way out of it, and you think of it in terms of sheer dread serving others. Now the supper is progressing. Jesus gets up and serves in this way, and you're astounded. Your, Your jaw is on the floor. You can't believe he's done this. And then he says, do you understand what I've done to you? And he explains it. And at the end he says, if you know these things and do them, you are blessed. Now I ask you at the end of verse 17, who is the most blessed man in the room right now? Judas? Oh no, he's in so much conflict over what he's just seen and experienced. Satan in his ear. Treachery in his heart. Acting the part but having his mind somewhere else. Peter? No, he's in total misery. He's so conflicted, he's like, I should have done this. Why didn't I see this? Why did I let Jesus do this? I should have done this. Why didn't I at least wash Jesus' feet? And he's probably representative of all the rest of them. You know who the happiest man in the room is right now at the end of verse 17? Jesus. Because he got up, donned the towel, took the basin, and washed dirty feet. Beloved, this is the testimony of Scripture throughout. God repeatedly tells us that there is great reward in the keeping of his word, in the actual doing of that which we have understood. This is not legalism. This is not some standard by which you attain the favor of God and secure his peace for all eternity. No, this is right Christian practice in following your Lord who has shown you the way. And if you are redeemed, if you are forgiven of your sins, if you are free of your guilt by his grace, if you have his life in you by his spirit, it will bubble itself up into this. You will serve others. You will understand what he has done and you will serve others. 
That's how Psalm 1 starts, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. And in his season he shall bear fruit, and his leaf will not, will not wither. And listen, whatever he does shall what? Prosper. That is blessedness. Psalm 19, in the description of the word, how great and precious these commandments of the Lord are and how they revive the soul and teach us to walk in all his ways. The end of that, verse 11, says there is great reward in the keeping of them. Psalm 119 begins the same way Psalm 1 did. Blessed is the man whose way follows the word of God, who keeps his way blameless and walks in the law of the Lord. Jesus told us in Matthew 7 that the wise man will build his house on the rock of his word. They'll build their life upon the foundation, the sure and steady foundation of obedience to his word. Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, those who hear the word of God and keep it are the blessed ones. Paul tells the church in Philippi in chapter 4 and verse 9, what you've seen and heard and received in me, those things do, and the God of peace will be with you. Blessing from God. The Apostle John, who writes our gospel, writes in his first epistle that we know we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. Is there a greater way for God to bless you than for you to know Christ? Paul thought not in Philippians 3. He gave up everything. He counted it all as dung, all his religious achievements up to that point. He set it all aside, forgot about it, laid it aside, and pursued after knowing Christ. John says, if you keep his commandments, you know you have known him. He goes on to say in chapter 2, after he tells us not to love the world nor the things that are in the world, tells us that the, the world is passing away, but if we do the will of God, we will abide forever. That's a blessing of God. Chapter 3, verse 17, John tells us that if we keep God's commandments and do what pleases the Lord, then our prayers are answered as we walk according to his will and pray in light of his will. Beloved, there's no deep theological mystery here. You don't need a seminary degree to understand the teaching of John 13. We don't need to go to the classroom and write out all these Greek terms on the whiteboard and argue over what they mean. It's obvious on the face of the text, right? The most immature among us, the, the, the youngest of believers among us understands what this means. You've been served by Christ. Therefore, what joy is yours to live a life in obedience to Christ to serve him. And this is exactly how all of life is, isn't it? Lest you think I'm preaching legalism. This is the law of life that I began with. All of life is built upon this. You can be a guru of financial knowledge. You could know how to tell everyone in the room how to manage their checkbook and their savings and their investments. You could tell me the top five YouTubers to watch so that I understand the stock market. Believe me, I need help. You could tell me all that, and, and yet if your life is not dominated and dictated by what you understand, you are miserable. Correct? 
You're racking up debt. You have no way out and no hope, and you have no money to invest. But you know what to do if you ever did. That's no fun. That's terrible. Believer, brother, sister, is that you with humility? Is that you with humble service to our Lord? Knowing all about it. Knowing Philippians 2 like the back of your hand. Frankly, it's easier to preach about it. To listen to a sermon about it. To write an essay on it. To tell your kids how they should operate in light of it. But we must do it in order to be blessed so I ask you to evaluate your life and your practice one way to evaluate from this text is to ask am I unhappy unsettled not experiencing the blessing of the Lord in my life and in my relationships this is a relational text right in John 13 this is how Jesus relates to others and how he calls us to do the same So how are your relationships with your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your parents, your schoolmates, your coworkers, your neighbors, your roommates? Are they experiencing the the blessing of the Lord? Or are they full of of turmoil and, and infighting and envy and bitterness and anger and despair and depression and frustration? And the answer to this text is is not that that relationship gets radically altered by someone else. The message of Jesus in John 13 is to you and to me. Do you understand what I've done to you? If I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, so you ought to do to one another. God help us by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the rhythm of submitting to your word week in and week out. We needed this. I needed to hear your word to my soul. So we pray that you would take what we've heard and not allow us to be what James describes as foolish hearers, but not doers of the word. By your grace, empower and move us to be those who keep that which your son has said. And in so doing, then would you move us to humble service more and more. Thank you for the signs of this we see among us. All of that is of your grace. Even this morning, we've watched servants serve us so well. Thank you for them. Please grow each of them in humble service to you and to us. And then, Lord, would you grow us in that as well. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.